Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 40. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Lee Miller, assistant professor and extension turfgrass pathologist at Purdue University. As a newly men and boilermaker, Dr. Miller has hit the ground running at Purdue University. Dr. Miller's research program is wide-ranging and well-known for quality, timely, and relatable communication of research findings. Dr. Miller's published research includes identification and distribution of fungi associated with fairy rings on golf course putting greens, effective nitrogen source on timing on spring dead spot and large patch incidents, and detection of pythium species in golf course irrigation systems, among some other topics. In our interview with Dr. Miller, we discuss these topics, and he catches us up to speed on his recent appointment at Purdue University. Turf Dudes is a Herald's agronomy team collaboration of Dr. Raymond Snyder, Dr. Paul Giordano, and myself, Dr. Jeff Atkinson. Raymond, Paul, and I serve as directors of agronomy for Heralds. Enjoy the show. Well, I appreciate you joining us. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy as getting situated in Purdue, but um, I've known you for a while, and but I don't know that I've ever asked you the question of kind of how you got started in the industry and you know, how you got to your journey of Missouri and then then Purdue. Uh, so why don't you, we start out by just saying, hey, what's uh, how did you get into turf in the first place? And, you know, why, why did you decide to call this career path home? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for the for the invitation. I've always wanted to be a fadude. Um, I'm not sure if I'm acidic or alkaline, but uh, I'm not sure which one of those is better. I know that salt, fat, acid, and heat, so maybe I'm acidic because uh, you know I like food, Jeff. Um, but it's it's actually awesome that we're doing this. You know, we're T minus what just a little, maybe an hour and a half until Tiger tees off for the Masters week. Yep. Um, and I got started because of the Masters. Um, I saw Jack Nicholas raise that in 1986. I was 12 years old, and he raised that big old putter uh, on 16 or 17. Now I'm forgetting which hole it is. But anyway, that, that kind of started my journey. No one in my entire family is associated with golf. Um, I told my dad that year that I wanted to go to the Players' Championship. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, he picked up my Kool-Aid and smelled it. Um, and asked my mom what she put in it. He thought that maybe there was some vodka. Uh, but he took me uh, that, that first year, took me out of school, which was, you know, obviously uh, a good thing for, for a young kid to get taken out of school for anything. Um, but Hubert Green threw me his ball after he birdied the fourth hole, and that was it. So um, my dad is a master electrician, so very much blue collar. Um, after that, you know, I kind of was begging him for golf clubs and he made me, uh, uh, it was a pipe with that black electrician's tape. That was the grip. And it was an adapter that went from three quarters to one inch uh, or three quarters to half an inch. And it was kind of sloped one way. Um, and I was practicing in the garage with it. And then that next Christmas, I got golf clubs and that was it. Uh, my lack of talent pushed me into research. Um, <laughs> so uh, I kind of went and when I was doing my undergrad, I kind of did all kind of different things, marine biology, computer science, uh, and finally realized I'd been working on golf courses since I was 14. So ended up going from University of Hawaii back to North Carolina State, joined the program there, uh, and interned for BASF. And that's how I got, got interested into the dark side and the turf grass pathology. And Lee Burpee offered me an assistantship, and that was it. So from there, so it all started with Jack Nicholas on Masters Week, huh? It is. So were you actually there for that? Oh no. Person? no, no, Like I said before, that no one in my entire family was associated with golf. So that was that was it. I just I saw that on TV, and that was that was it. 
as soon as I saw my hand go up, I was like, whoa, I think I want to do that. In 1986, there was only two I never make a putt, right? So I'm doing this, just hoping something falls in, but it never does. (laughs) So to finish up after my master's, I thought I was done with academia. Went and worked four and a half years at the Chicago District Golf Association under the tutelage of Randy Kane, um, who taught me, was my first real mentor that taught me turf diagnostics. When Randy retired, I kind of knew that I needed to go on and get my PhD, and that's when the opportunity came with uh, Lane Treadway and started my PhD in 2006 uh, on Varying, so the preventative program there, and uh, started at University of Missouri from 10 to 21, and now I'm at Purdue. So, Lee, you obviously you spent a little time in the Midwest with the CDGA. Um, then you, you went down to Missouri, which still technically is the Midwest, but a little bit further south. So now with the recent move to Purdue, um, I guess, Harold's we, we obviously have a big presence in the Midwest, and we're excited to have a, a new pathologist at Purdue, and, and one certainly that has some, some great capabilities in diagnostics. And um, I guess give me the rundown of how you're feeling, how you're settling in at Purdue. Uh, what are some of the exciting things you have on the forefront with your research program as you build that out there. And yeah, I guess how, what's the the climate in the Midwest right now as we start to get the season going? Yeah. So there's a lot of questions there, Paul. Um, So I did tell you earlier that I'm right next to the loading dock and the dumpster. So that's what you're hearing in the background. Um, But so I was fortunate that I brought a graduate student with me from Missouri. So Asa McCurdy is working on a Uh, kind of a nematode survey looking at the spatial and temporal dynamics of nematode populations. So in Missouri, we really were um, focusing on the lance nematode. Um, The reason is, is it's, uh, as you may know, it's both an ectoparasite and an endoparasite. So that kind of doesn't lend itself very well to controls. So we were looking for, is there a certain time of year? So we went four different timings. And then we went five different depths. Uh, So we did April, July, uh, April, June, August, and October. So four different times, and then at five different depths from zero to two, two to four, four to six, six to eight, eight to 10. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we're looking for is when we're seeing those population spikes. And what we found, at least in Missouri, is that the Lance Nematode really kind of blossoms or booms in October. And okay. if you think about when we're applying our nematicides, most of that is going to be in the spring or maybe by the time we get to midsummer. And then we the problem is we ramp up in, in October. Uh, it's kind of a time when most supers are kind of wiping the sweat off their head and, and getting ready, you know, hopefully looking for Thanksgiving to blow out irrigation at mm-hmm. that point already. So, you know, that was that was interesting in Missouri. And, and what we're going to do is take that and do the same thing in Indiana. Okay. Um, here in Indiana, I've, I've given a couple talks and um, and really the, the supers here don't don't really think about nematodes that much. So I, I hope that I'm not the boogeyman and I hope <laughs> that I'm not bringing the nematodes with me. Um, but I, we do need to do a, a pretty extensive, you know, it's kind of this black box of what are what are nematodes? What, what are the populations? What are the problems here in the Midwest? Sure. I don't think we have a very good handle on that. Uh, my other research focuses, you know, obviously this kind of slide a couple clicks north 
um, is going to bring some some different diseases. So obviously, Dollar Spot is king here in Missouri. We were most of our fairways were zoysia grass. Here, moving to bed grass, you know, we're talking about that acreage. We've got to start thinking about Dollar Spot. Um, you know, you almost have to work on that as a pathologist up here, just because of the economic importance. Right. Uh, so aside from evaluating fungicides, we have a pretty extensive fungicide evaluation program. But aside from that, we also want to look at some of the newer resistant cultivars. Um, what are some of the impediments to actually putting some of these newer cultivars into our fairways? And maybe looking at can we reduce our fungicide expenditures that way? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to look at different interseeding techniques and and maybe explore what some of the impediments are. And then kind of a third one, I, I have at least I don't know if you can see the board in the back, but uh, there's there's a list there. I have I have much more many more research ideas than I have money, unfortunately. Um, but I've also been brought in uh, by my colleagues here, which is really exciting to be part of this Purdue framework, by the way, this sure. Purdue team of, of Aaron Patton and Kale Bigelow and Doug Richmond and, and Yi Wei, who's upstairs, our, our breeder. So being part of this team is, is, is a neat thing, to be quite mm-hmm. honest, and really invigorating. Uh, but Aaron's going to bring me in on, on, our, on their fine fescue grants. Um, and we want to look at, you know, summer patch resistance in fine fescues. Um, actually, a, really a pathosystem I'm, I'm not very familiar with. Um, and then also kind of looking, maybe delving in a little bit deeper into what the endophyte association there is. You know, is there any endophyte? Now, you would think endophyte is foliar, but there is some uh, in some other pathosystems, some indications that endophytes might translate to some more soil-borne disease resistance. So we want to kind of kind of explore that a little bit more further. Um, so uh, definitely a different area of, of research than I've done in the past. I got a question about the nematodes. The, you know, I'm in Florida, and so this is the nematode kingdom here. A and big sandbox. Yeah, big <laughs> sandbox, perfect environment for nematodes. Do you feel perhaps that um, even in the more northern uh, geographies that nematodes might be an underlying stressor that that is uh, creating – additional pressure on these on turf grass that that maybe has hasn't been uh, fully recognized in the past yeah so in missouri um before i kind of got there we had a nema we do have a nematode lab there or did uh it actually is labeled soybean cyst nematode diagnostics or scn diagnostics because that's how important uh that particular nematode is to uh to row crop production um, but when I came in, we started getting more samples in. And the way I kind of looked at it, I would do a di- diagnosis. And if I couldn't find anything um, and I was just about to the edge of calling it, you know, abiotic or physiological decline. But I, I thought there was something that wasn't quite right about the the um, the roots or, you know, particularly with lance nematodes, you can see them in the roots. They are mm-hmm. a big nematode. Um, I would send it on and, and at least tell the super, hey, you know, it might be a good idea to send send this on to the to our lab here. Let's get some counts and, and maybe see. And the biggest year we had was 2018, 2019, very stressful conditions. We They did about 350, I think it was 347 samples that year. And out of that, if we used the Lance nematode threshold of 200, uh, we were actually looking at about 15 to 17% of those samples 
that were above that threshold that we put in, which was really surprising to me. I, I wasn't thinking about that being an underlying issue. Now, there is a difference, you know, morphologically between bent grass and Bermuda grass and that bent grass does have a lot more roots. Um, so when we talk about that, that difference between uh, it's really I'm not sure that you can compare the two systems of ultra dwarfs and, and bent grass. I, I think that um, when we look at the nematode impact on that, I, I think we really have to take into consideration that host aspect. Um, what, were, what were the symptoms of the bent grass roots when they were impacted by the lance nematode? Well, for one thing, you could find a lot of pythium root rot. You could find other diseases. Um, so I think it's I think it's pretty obvious, and and I know this uh, this is anecdotal, and that some of my colleagues are going to put some some more hard research data behind this. But I think the nematodes open the door. Um, whenever you have anything that is burrowing through the the epidermis of the root and getting into the cortex, uh, you know the nematodes aren't uh, aren't closing the door behind them. Uh, I think they're opening the party. So when we look at those roots that are uh, that are necrotic, that are brown, you know, we might not see a, a whole lot of pythium or a whole lot of summer patch, but um, we do see some and that are associated with it. So, um, you know, it's it's a root decline. It's it's not anything that um, is really apparent. It's not like you can look from above ground and give a you know, for me, I'm a short fellow, so that five, six diagnosis where you can wag your finger, go, oh, I know what that is. Um, you know, it's just a general decline that would mirror pythium root rot. It could mirror summer patch symptoms. It could mirror many other diseases um, or just drought um, or, or some of the abiotic type of things. Uh, you mentioned the turf di uh, diagnosis. Uh, do you have any other tips or, or tricks for our uh, turf managers, you know, making that initial field observation from the surface that, that might help uh, determine which way to go in terms of imparting a, a, a fungicide? Well, I can tell you the foliar things are easy, right? So, um, you know, most of what we get into our labs and actually, um, Jim Kearns and Lee Butler have a, have a great diagnostic service. Um, and when you compare what I was seeing in Missouri compared to what they were seeing, it's eerily similar. Um, and it really all is for us, Pythium root rot is the number one disease that we diagnose on bent grass. Um, you know, anthracnose is in there. I think that that is kind of a, um, because most, you know, many of the supers are still kind of going at lower end rates. Um, and I was seeing some anthracnose on some bent grass varieties that I wasn't expecting to see it on. So newer T1 and A1 varieties, um, whereas in the past we kind of always thought it was Pencross and Seaside and Providence and some of those other type of varieties. Um, but for the most part, don't if you don't know what it is, go get some help. Because particularly with these diseases, the reason we get them is that for the most part, they look pretty similar. If you're just standing there, it's it's really hard to eyeball um, soilborne disease, and I've done it wrong before too. That's that's how I know. Um, when I go on diagnostic visits, you know, I when I first started, I would go, oh, I've seen that before. I know what it is. I get it into the lab. I'm like, oh crap, that is not what it is. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, so 
I think having somebody with the that's trained in diagnostics with the skills of the microscope, um, I think is is extremely important. Um, you know, I'm not going to open up a, a huge diagnostic lab like University of Wisconsin and what uh, Kurt and Paul are doing up there or what North Carolina State's doing. Um, I'm going to be here to help. Um, and, and basically, I, we will do diagnostics. It's all going to go through our PPDL, but I'm not, you know, I don't want a thousand samples. <laughs> uh, I, that's just because they all go through me. I, I don't have a, a diagnostician like those more uh, kind of trained diagnostic labs. Um, but I am going to do that because I need the ground truth for myself. It's kind of a shaking of hands. I get the ground truth and that kind of leads me into what my research is. And as much as I've been, you know, I've been in Missouri for 11 years, I, I feel like I'm experienced in this area. I was in Chicago for four and a half years. I need to do some learning about what, what the pathosystems are here, what the, what the, the diseases are here that are going to be most important. Um, you know, and uh, luckily I, I have a great predecessor, Dr. Rick Latin, who is going to be on the Mount Rushmore of, of turf pathologists as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I'm coming into an established program, but I still I still need to learn. And, I, and that diagnostic portion really, really does it. Um, plus, it scratches an itch. It's it's my favorite part of the job. I, I love working with turf managers and and hopefully helping them solve their problems. I got one more one more question about sample submission. On occasion, we'll, one might visit a site to look at a potential pathogen. And then upon arriving there, you learned that that morning a fungicide was applied. <laughs> is it still worthwhile to collect the sample and send the sample? Or at that point, is it a moot point? I think it's still worthwhile to send the sample. Um, what we can find is probably going to be limited. Um, when we do our, our incubation and we put it into, you know, we might not have things pop out the way that, that they should. Um, now, that might be an indication that the right fungicide was applied. Right. <laughs> um, but if you're applying a fungicide before you do a diagnosis, you're, it's really a shotgun approach at that point, right? So, you know, if you have, say, Pythium root rot, which has a specific set of fungicides that work well for its control, and you're going after summer patch or you're going after nematodes, then it's, you know, that could be, a, I won't call it a wasted application because you might prevent the other things. But, you know, you might you might be kind of that dog chasing the tail. That being said, I understand why, yeah. um, you know, particularly when it comes to putting greens, that's the bread and butter. Um, and you're you know, when you see those symptoms, you want to try to put something on as fast as possible because the diagnostics were as we're as quick as we can be. Um, but, you know, if there's 10 samples there, it's hard for me to get through 10 samples a day. I think it's hard for anybody to get through 10 samples a day. Um, well, you know, most of the time I'm spending somewhere around 30, 45 minutes a sample. I think that's an important point, Lee. And you, you touched on this a little bit earlier with some of your comments. The, the fact that diagnostics in turf is still very much in art form. There's a lot of science behind it, but it's an art form that requires hundreds, if not thousands of hours of experience to understand what you're looking at particularly with these rootborne issues and, and someone like yourself, you know, you talked about the association of nematodes and ectotrophic diseases and pythium root rots. And 
discerning between those things, you might see all of those things there to some degree, but then discerning what is the primary problem to treat and make that recommendation is still very much uh, an experience-based craft, right? And um, I think you touching on that is an important facet because I think sometimes superintendents think you submit the sample, you run some fancy experiment and boom, you get the result and that's what it is. It's very much still a lot of time and effort put into it. Well, and there is a difference between detection and diagnosis. Correct. And I think that that's something that that gets kind of lost. You know, we're in this this uh, you know kind of molecular age at this point where we want to do PCR. We want to. I'm going to tell you, we can find most of the time. I'll look at a sample and I can find three to five different pathogens, right? So, but if you don't tie that to what the environment is, particularly what the fungicide application schedule is. That's that's where you're putting that whole piece together. So the relationship between a turf manager and the diagnostician isn't just shipping the sample. It has to be a conversation. Um, and that's why I do my best and to actually call and and to talk to the turf manager, or the superintendent um, and, and actually get some of the, the background information and and filling out that form that goes along with it. And pictures is extremely important um, now. We all have, you know, we're all photographers because of our phone. Um, and I think that folks want to get in there and, and kind of give you that that microscope look and zoom in. If you're sending a sample, don't worry about that. We're really looking at what the aggregation of the symptoms are, what the, the pattern is, perhaps across the green. Um, those are the kind of things that, that can help us. One more thing I want to say about diagnostics that, that I've learned in the last five, five years um, that I never really impressed upon before is that if you're taking samples, um, you need to, to actually look and lean on uh, that three quarter inch soil sampler and take it all the way down to the pea gravel. Um, what I tend to see, I've seen a couple times now, is that at the base, we're actually kind of locking up or there's drainage issues at the bottom. Um, so when you go and you send me a sample and say it's four inches deep, I can't see what's going on below that. So when you're going out and sampling, you know, we've relied on TDRs that are giving us maybe the top two inches, but you need to know what that whole soil column is doing. Um, and I think that's that's a real good scouting method, uh, particularly when you're looking at your PETA greens, P-I-T-A, you can fill in the acronym. When you're doing that, you know, maybe look and maybe that drainage is an underlying issue that you're you're not aware of. That's a great point. Great point. Elite, you know, I'm changing subjects here a bit. You mentioned your grad research that you did uh, focused on fairy ring research. And you know, there's a lot of a lot of folks that say, yeah, I had great, uh, great results with X product that I use on my course. But, you know, go to another course, they may not have the same success. And you published a paper a while back ago that did kind of a analysis of different species of fairy ring in different areas across the country on putting greens. In that research, what did you find as far as a variety of species? And then also, are there is there a group of chemistries, a class of chemistries that more effective than others? What guidance would you give a superintendent for fairy ring management? Yeah, so that, that's a that's a many tiered question, and you're you're pulling on my gray hairs there, Jeff. I appreciate that. Uh, so. I actually have not done a whole lot of fairing research since I've been in Missouri. I think part of that is uh, kind of what we built there as far as the preventative program 
and relying on the DMI chemistries uh, for those early spring applications. Um, and I say early spring, 55 degree soil temperature, uh, five day average, 55 to 60 is kind of that target range for the first application. And then the second one is 28 days later. Um, we've actually found that you actually get a dollar spot bump out of that too. So you do get some dollar spot efficacy out of that. So it's really not a one trick pony. When it comes to the diversity of species, really it kind of came down to it, you know, we had a sampling bias, obviously being in North Carolina, we had a sampling bias towards the Southeast. We found that the puffball species, uh, Bovista dermixantha, Vasellum curtisii were some of those that, that really were most prominent. Um, we, we found those, I mean, those were the, the two that really stood out. Um, you know, if you go to other areas of the country, though, particularly if you go up north, we would see other species like Merasmius and Caprinus and some of those other true mushroom species. Um, and I think that Dr. Fidanza at Penn State would probably tell you the same thing. But, you know, out of when you think about 60 plus, you know, really, I was able to you know, what we kind of found is that really there were only about four or five that we would see most often. Um, and of those, you know, I, I don't really know. We did a little bit of work with fungicide sensitivity. Um, of those, they're very difficult to grow in culture. They just don't grow very quickly. Um, they're, they're not the easiest to work with. In fact, we can't inoculate the disease, which is one of the things that, that I tried for my whole four years there trying to inoculate fairy rings and it just did not work. Um, so there's a little bit of literature that said it worked. I tried it. It doesn't work <laughs> at least, at least in the systems that, that I was working with. Um, so those are kind of some of the difficult things around fairy ring. And, you know, some will say that uh, the SDHI chemistries work really well for it. And, and we've seen some really good success if I was thinking curatively, I would think of Valista and ProStar and those kind of SDHIs as, as kind of curative. I've seen Tebuconazole work really well uh, curatively as well. Of course, then you kind of worry bent grass if it's 90 degrees. You know, you don't want to put too many of those DMIs on at the same time. Um, things like Briskway, the newer uh, DMI chemistries. So that's kind of where I, I kind of stand on fair and control now, you know. Make sure you make those two early applications, particularly if you know you've had a history of the disease, um, and then kind of take it from there. And it might peter out when you get into August and early September. You know, we are seeing longer seasons. Um, I'm not going to say global climate change or whatever, but the fact of the matter is we're, we're seeing some of these longer seasons, although it's cold and I think it's going to snow tomorrow. Uh, here, but um, you know, particularly in the fall, we we might get a little bit more that you know it's kind of the same story as this crabgrass pre-emerge, right? Um, making those split applications that hopefully will get you through August and and into the next fall. So Lee, once once the right chemistry is found, right, and I think we have some options as you mentioned. When making those applications targeting fairy ring, what are the most important aspects of making sure that, that those products are being optimized? And I know there's some tips and tricks and, you know, I, I, I'm kind of leading you here because I have this conversation every year with superintendents, um, particularly when it comes to chronic fairy ring issues on, say, fairways, where maybe you can't get as much post-application irrigation done. You know, what would your suggestions be to really try to do as 
you know, what's the best strategy they could use to try to get that that product to, to really be efficacious? So first of all, you, you're leading me down this path and I appreciate it because it's one of the soapboxes that I've been standing on maybe for the last 10 years. Um, when we're having discussions between pathologists and, and superintendents, we need to get away from how many minutes you're running your heads. We can't have a conversation if I'm talking about we need to put two tenths of an inch of post application irrigation on and you could and someone will tell me, well, oh, well, I put eight minutes on. So that's it. That is a lot more water than you think it is. Um, so a gap, an acre inch of water over uh, is twenty seven thousand one hundred fifty four gallons. So we actually uh, I, we built a little irrigation simulator and actually put that out. Um, a tenth of an inch, one tenth of an inch was 3.1 gallons over 25 square feet. <laughs> so go back and do the math and you'll go, wait a minute, hold on. And actually it's 62 gallons over a thousand square feet. So another thing that, you know, if you read some of the labels, it'll say, well, we can go out and this is particularly applicable for, for fairways. You go, well, I can't run the irrigation that long. I'm going to go out and put it in three to five gallons of carrier volume. Well, compare that to 62 gallons, which is a tenth of an inch. And I'm right. telling you to put two tenths of an inch on. So. What we forget, um, and, and maybe not forget, but maybe what we're not aware of is that these fungicides have very, very high KOC values, so they tie up to the organic matter very, very quickly. So the leaves are actually the enemy, the leaves and the thatch when you're talking about getting this down in the target zone. Now, on fairways where you have a heavier soil, then what do you do? And what I would consider is to go out, apply it in the morning, apply it over the dew, so you still have it in kind of a liquid form, and then water it in until you get to where you think you're at field capacity or you think that it's wet. And then wait, wait for it to kind of go in and then pulse it again if you can. Now, I know play, I know there's golfers in the way, that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, and honestly, we need to do more work on this aspect of how to control fairing on on heavier soils. You know, we've kind of with the preventative applications and on golf greens and sand base, we, we kind of have explored that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But the control on these larger acreages and heavier soils, I, I think, is going to be much more difficult. I agree. I guess last thing on the fairing subject, I mean, when it comes to penetrance and, and other adjuvants that we can add to the tank that might help get those chemistries down, what's your experience and what's your recommendation overall with those? Curatively, you absolutely have to add a surfactant in along with it, particularly if it's set up um, a water repellent or a hydrophobic layer. You have to remediate those soil physical properties to get that fungicide down in. Now, preventatively in this two system, we didn't find really any uh, benefit to adding the, the wetting agent at the same time. Um, so I would say not to do it. Just put it on your normal scale, normal schedule. Um, if, you know, say it's a 28 day schedule, apply kind of around it. Um, so, again, curatively is one way. Curatively, you have to put that surfactant or wetting agent in and then uh 
preventatively, I would say you don't really have to. Moving on to perhaps uh, transitioning into spring and fungicide and fertility. Here in Florida today, we're, yesterday we had summer. To, tonight we're going to have winter, and then tomorrow we're going to have spring. All the way yeah, 20, weather, weather by Sybil. Yeah, all within 24 <laughs> hours. So eventually we're going to have spring-like conditions uh, tomorrow. And, and you know, but in your world and in your geographies, do you have any recommendations or experience with uh, the relationship between spring fertility and um, minimizing disease occurrence and/or fungicide recommendations? You know, transitioning into our next season. Yeah. So um, back in Missouri, when we were working with zoysia grass, um, you know, there was this this adage that if you applied fertilizer too early in the spring or you know, during that green up period during infection, you would you would make large patch explode. Um, we only worked, I think, probably somewhere around five to six years on research projects with Kansas State. Dr. Megan Keneally and Dr. Ken Obasa did some work as well. Ross Braun, who was here uh, working with Aaron Patton and is now back at Kansas State, also was part of this project. Uh, we did it in two locations. We could not find any increase in disease activity with nitrogen application. Um, in fact, we would see less because we'd actually see some, some regrowth. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to that pathosystem, I think we've pretty well established and hopefully debunked that myth. And, and actually, if you think about what's going on uh, now with, uh, again, the, the Kearns lab, looking at brown patch and tall fescue and that nitrogen relationship, uh, also what Bill Kreiser is doing, you know, that kind of is the same kind of thing. Um, they're seeing that these these kind of old adages that we had had and we learned them in the textbooks that nitrogen application really causes a spike of disease activity, particularly brown patch and large patch. That's just not something that that really is is based in the research that that we're conducting. We've recently conducted and is being conducted now. Um, you know, there's just recently been another paper that's come out. Um, saying that that tie between nitrogen and brown patch is just not there. Um, you know, going into spring, I'm a little bit different here than I am down in, in Missouri, right? So, again, I've been put a couple clicks north. Um, we've been very, very, uh, you know, you talked about the um, how your weather has been up and down. We, we kind of have been the same way as well. We, we have not been able to break out um into spring yet i think it's 43 for a high today i talked about snow we're talking about 75 or 80 next week so maybe that's the light at the end of the tunnel um so i think it's important to realize that when you're coming out into spring you've got a nitrogen starved plant that is finally getting the environmental conditions that's ready to go so i always kind of like that that little bit of spike that little bit of hey let's let's get out Let's start. Let's start growing. This is this is the time, um, and then of course getting into that normal summer food uh, spoon feeding schedule. Um, that you know at least when it comes to brown patch on tall fescue, we we kind of shied away from that. We kind of shied away from well, we want to keep all the fertilizer off during the summer and then come back in the fall. I still think the fall is the most important time for that recovery period, um, but we can't let the plant go hungry. Uh, throughout the throughout the whole growing season, um, and I think what we we kind of forgotten is is that nitrogen is mobile; it moves to the growing leaf tip, and we harvest it. So 
you know, we're actually creating a, a nitrogen deficient system. And even grasses that look like they're healthy and green, you know, sometimes you can get down and, and uh, particularly higher cut grass, you can go and pull some of that out and the, the oldest uh, leaf is going to be yellow and chlorotic. Well, that is a nitrogen deficiency system symptom. And you actually won't pick that up um, before it actually happens uh, just by looking at the, the surface. So, Lee, um, one of the, the things that you've been involved with more recently, you had a graduate student, Clayton Rushford, who was working on a project. And I know you said earlier you didn't want to be the boogeyman. You're making me boogeyman again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to. And I think I'm going to give you a chance to explain yourself here. But. You know, the work that, that Clayton was conducting in, in, with you guys um, in your lab focused on pythium being found in irrigation ponds on golf courses, right? And I guess I, I'd like for you to maybe elaborate on, uh, is that truly what you believe to be a primary inoculum source uh, in a golf environment is, is, is the irrigation ponds where we're finding pythium uh, species that could potentially then go and infect either the foliage or the root zone subsequently. Well, pardon the pun here, but this is kind of just the first drop in the bucket when it comes to exploring what's going on here. Um, you know, so we had, we had known from our, our horticulture friends where they were using recycled water in ornamental production and also for vegetable production. You know, when we're seeing those recycled systems, we knew that they normally would get phytophthora in there. Phytophthora and pythium are very closely related. Um, and actually pythium and phytophthora, they would, they would find them quite often. So, you know, I don't know what drive it was or, you know, how much caffeine I had. I was kind of like, you know, I wonder if this is going on in golf courses because the number one disease, like I've said, that we would diagnose is pythium root rot. And my thought is, well, where the heck is it coming from? Is it coming from the seed? Is it coming from, you know, how is it that it's that it's this persistent in the environment? Um, so I, I got a master's student who was crazy enough to, to agree to do this. And we went out and he basically collected from the irrigation head. So he took out uh, glass brownie pans. So glass Pyrex. That was one of his jokes is that he worked with brownies. Um, and then we also went out and sampled from near the irrigation intake and it's called a Van Dorn sampler. And, um, I was very fortunate that, that on campus, uh, I got our state limnologist, Dr. Rebecca North to join us on this. So she was kind of, she would help us with some of the sampling methods. We also looked at algae and, and some, some other things that were involved. Um, but this is kind of cool. So it kind of, it's this tube that's has wiffle balls around it. Um, and you would kind of throw it down in my olden days. It was, uh, you know, I used to live next to the St. John's river and we had the crab traps. So it kind of reminded me of that. It would sink down, be close to the irrigation intake, and then you'd yank on it and those wiffle balls would close over. Um, so who doesn't want to do research with wiffle balls and brownie pans, right? <laughs> um, so we actually were sampling very little. So we were sampling about one and a half liters every time we went out from both the, uh, the irrigation intake and then also from the heads. Mm -hmm. Now, if you put that into the context of what an irrigation cycle would be, it's a ridiculously low number. I mean, it's like 0.0002% or something in, in that neighborhood. 
when you actually think about how much is coming out. I talked about the 27,154 gallons, right? So when we, when we finally put that number to it, I was like, ah, we're not going to find anything. This is going to be great. You know, this, this master's project is going to crash and burn. Turns out we found 23 different species of pythium. Um, <laughs> so the problem is, is the, the way that we did it, you know, we were using the ITS region. So we weren't actually able to get down to a lot of the, actually we really identified uh, and confirmed like five or six species. So the other ones are kind of in these clades. Um, if you know any, I'm not a taxonomist. Uh, I'm definitely a lumper and not a splitter. I don't think many taxonomists join me in that because there's a lot of splitting. There's a lot of, I mean, what they call a species, it's all over the place. Um, but a number of these clades were actually um, uh, what would be pathogens, root pathogens on bent grass. Some were pathogens on corn as well. So we knew that we had monocot pathogens in there. Um, and that's when I started becoming the boogeyman. So how much of this is actually, um, you know, do I think it's, I, I think it's an inoculum source based on what we found. Um, sure. We basically found what I think is a needle in a haystack. Um, how much of it actually contributes, I don't know. Uh, you know, we did have very interestingly a course in St. Louis that was on municipal water. So they had been treated and we found no pythium in any of that water. Now, I will tell you that I've diagnosed pythium root rot from the greens of that course. Hmm. So it's not the only inoculum source. So how much do we put into that? How much do we go about and think about, well, do I need to treat the water? Do I need to think about UV vis? I, I don't think that we're to that level yet. Um, we, need to, we need to continue to, to scratch around and but this is kind of, you know, at least the lead in and maybe hopefully a foundational piece sure. to, to more work in this area. How many? So let's not freak out yet is kind of what I'm trying to get at. Right. I had my so mind envisioned. I don't have a super reaper thing and a big stiff. <laughs> my question, I guess, is for the two pathologists on the discussion. What's the you hear pythium say, oh, man, it's a bad something bad's about to happen. But how many species of pythium are actually? pathogenic to turf grass or do we know that answer yeah so there's a uh, over a hundred different species of pythium um one of them is actually a biocontrol um there's some and actually one of them that we found that's actually a human pathogen a lot of them uh there's a couple of them that are diseases on amphibians uh they they perform a number of different things in the environment some of them are pathogenic on algae which makes sense being coming from water sources um, so I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood, if you look at Gloria Bott's paper, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20, um, and then they range in their pathogenicity. So there's some that are very, very severe. One of the ones that is kind of on my hit list would be Vanderpoolii. That's one that we kind of see that uh, was, was pretty pathogenic in our greenhouse tests and, and some, of the, some of the other work that we've done. Um, you know, obviously you have volutum, which is the cause of pythium root dysfunction, which is a completely different disease, by the way, uh, than pythium root rot. Um, so that's it, a really difficult question to ask. I think that us pathologists would agree that pythium root rot is a species complex, that there's a number of different pythium species that are there. Um, and that's why, you know, particularly when you have an effective chemistry that comes out like Segway and now Serrata, that works on a number of those different species, it becomes a very important tool in the arsenal. Um, whereas pythium root dysfunction, 
you know, there's Volutum is the main one, but there there might be one or two other species that are involved. Darkhanomones, if you look at some of the the older literature, um, that that might kind of also be in there. But Volutum is really kind of the one that we key in on um, when it comes to to Pythium root dysfunction, which acts like a patch disease. And Pythium root rot is basically just needs a pool to swim in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've actually found some of these species even up into Canada. And I think about that when it's 40 degrees and miserable and raining here that, you know, actually this, these April showers might be kind of prompting that, uh, that kind of thing here in the, here in our soggy Indiana weather right now. Sure. I'm glad you kind of, you mentioned the the new chemistries or the effective chemistries leagues. We can end on a high note at least, um, I guess it's rare that we see a new class of chemistry altogether enter the turf market. I mean, that, that I, I can't really remember the last time that's happened. And so here we are. We have a new class of chemistry, a new product in Serata. Um, you know, maybe just discuss your experience with that that chemistry as well as, you know, the programs that you typically recommend for Pythium Root Rot for, for golf course superintendents. You know, honestly, I don't have that much experience with Serata. Um, we were having, you know, when it comes to what we were doing in Missouri, we were kind of chasing Pythium Root Rot around. <laughs> and then it's that old adage, you know, once you put a plot there, all, all of a sudden the disease is magically uh, cured. <laughs> Um, so we, we were having that experience with Serata. Um, but that being said, I, I love it as a rotational now with Segway. Um, you know, you do have use limitations uh, for those. So, you know, kind of using Segway. Now I don't have to say that Segway is the only backbone, which is nice. I was saying that for many, many years <laughs> now, you know, using that 0.45 ounce rate, that 0.55 ounce rate is kind of a backbone and then rotating other chemistries in. I think that Serata comes in and all of a sudden you've got two backbones and that's a good place to be. Um, you know, it's, it's probably more difficult to walk with two backbones, but anyway, that's a <laughs> biology thing. Um, so, <laughs> uh, it's good to have a strong spine and, and, you know, when you have two, at least vertebrae that are there, there you, go. you can there. make up the chain, I guess it's better. I guess that's a better analogy. Um, so it is nice that we're going to have a nice rotational partner. And I, I do think, We'll see that when it comes into, um, you know, the overall efficacy of programs now. Again, you have to water those in. That's kind of the, the part that, that kind of gets missed. And, you know, when we're talking about the, uh, the variability in control of soil-borne diseases, I, I, really, I really wonder how much that one single piece really has to do with it. Last question. Do you have a uh, pick for the Masters this weekend? Oh, man. Uh, so I actually am in a, I'm, I'm in a fancy golf draft, uh, with a bunch of my buddies in Columbia, um, great guys. I, I miss them, uh, my golfing crew. Uh, so we picked six. So that, that's kind of hard for me to pick, uh, because all of those are now my favorites cause I want to beat their tail. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I kind of like Rory this week. I, yeah, I he's, think that he's, I think he's kind of flying under the radar um, I think he's one of those guys that's, and I am really rooting for Louis Oosthuizen. That guy in that swing has to win. I mean, he's, I just like watching him. Well, I think he's one under as we're speaking. So he's got a, he's got a shot. So. All right. Well, hey, we appreciate that. You guys got to watch the Masters live last night and. From what I could tell, there was only one person playing. 
well, based <laughs> on the media question, only yeah. talking about one person. I, was, I, was, <laughs> I, I would love to be able to pick Tiger, but man, I can't imagine limping around that course. I, I've I've only been on the course once, and uh, I was I was I was physically fit back then. I was I was in my younger days. I couldn't imagine having a bum wheel and and walking around that place. So Don't more testament to that athleticism, man. He's, he's done it before. All right. What are your picks? Come on. Spill it. I think, it. Uh, I don't know, man. Xander Shoffley, I think he's been playing good over the last couple of years. Let's see if he can hold up and get a first major win. I think he's got a chance. But I like your pick of Rory. You know, Rory's after his, what was he having a, I can't remember how many shot lead going on in the 10th tee several years ago. He's been rooting for the guy at Augusta ever since then. So I'm going to, I'm going to go a dark horse here only because it's a, it's a Homer pick. So James Piott. The USAM champion. So the reason is he's from where I live currently, Canton, Michigan. He went to my kid's school, elementary school, and he also is a Michigan State Spartan. So let's go. Wow, that's that's like the that's like the holy trinity for this guy. No, <laughs> I gotta him. pick that guy, right? <laughs> How about you, Ray? Well, I'm gonna follow uh, Paul's strategy. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna broaden it a little bit. I'm gonna say anybody who who is from or currently lives in Palm Beach County. <laughs> Those are my favorites. Well, you certainly know how to pick them, Raymond. That's uh, taking take the, take the that's, field. That's where I'm originally from, is Palm Beach County. That's why I say that. Well, neat. Yeah. Well, certainly looking forward to the weekend. It's always a special time for us in this industry. So, hey, Lee, man, appreciate, appreciate the time, appreciate the information, good insight, and uh, thanks for all you're doing and looking forward to watching your program grow at Purdue. Thanks. Uh, Appreciate it, guys. Uh, Take care and happy spring. Happy Masters Week. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Lee Miller. A sincere thank you to Dr. Miller for his time. This show would not be possible without the willingness and cooperation of folks across our industry willing to share their stories with us. Turf Dudes exists to communicate important research findings and turf management trends to turfgrass managers as part of Harold's effort to grow a better world. If you enjoy the show, We want your feedback. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes at heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. While you're at it, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, YouTube Music, or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time.